Hello and welcome to Asia Matters, the podcast where we aim to delve behind the headlines to discuss what is really happening in the world's most interesting region. I'm Andrew People. Well, we've had drama, drama and more drama in this year's US elections, which have been more than usually bitter and divisive. But after months of campaigning and a long counting process, we now know who is going to be the 46th American president, Democratic candidate Joe Biden. The American election is, of course, not just a national event, but an international one, and it's been closely watched in Asia. In this episode, we are partnering with the IAFOR Research Center at Osaka University in Japan to ask what the outcome could mean for the region. And we'll focus today in particular on East Asia and Southeast Asia. Well, joining us today from Seoul is Jay Wu Chu, Professor of Chinese Foreign Policy at Kyung Hee University. From Jakarta by Dewi Fortuna Anwar, Research Professor at the Indonesian Institute of Sciences, and from London by Yuka Kobayashi, who's an Assistant Professor in China and International Politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies. Thank you all for joining us today. Well, I wanted to start with a broad question, really, because I really want to get it in today's episode, what Asia sees in the US, what they hope for from Joe Biden, and what relationship they want with the US. So let's just start with Jay Wu. How do you think that Biden's victory is being greeted across the Asian region? I think he's uh, well received with a sigh of a relief coming from most countries, because uh, over the past four years, with Mr. Trump was uh, traumatic, <laughs> if I can say, particularly with South Korean case. Although we welcomed his effort to improve the United States relationship with North Korea and therefore with the side effect kicking in on the inner Korean relations. However, you know, his dealing with a traditional ally like Korea wasn't well received in South Korea. So uh, hopefully we'll get back to normal track with uh, Biden's administration in the future. Dewey, what's, what are the thoughts from Jakarta on Biden's win? Well, also greeted with great relief. As you know, Biden is vice president uh, during the Obama administration. is quite well known in Jakarta. And President Obama in particular had very close relations with Indonesia and also paid a great attention to ASEAN. So there is an expectation that the Biden administration would be more like a continuation of the Obama administration with its rebalancing towards Asia. And of course, the disruption that Trump carried out was not as great in Southeast Asia, but there was inattention towards ASEAN. And you know, for Southeast Asia, it is not sufficient to pay attention only to bilateral relations. You have to pay attention also to ASEAN as a whole. And throughout his four years presidency, Trump only attended the East Asia Summit once, and he never, never appointed the U.S. ambassador to ASEAN. So that was considered to be quite disengaged. So uh, U.S. credibility in Southeast Asia is at the lowest at the moment, actually. So, you know, a Biden presidency is generally uh, very welcome. So some relief being felt. Yuka, do you think that's the case as well? I don't think I disagree um, with anything that's been said so far. One thing I would highlight is, though, in terms of Trump, there was a special relationship that he developed with certain partners in Asia. Like, for example, the Trump-Abe special relationship was kind of a very strong pillar there. So in that sense, you know, it was a very much of a warm relations there, nothing really logical, nothing really strategic. So in that sense, there was a little bit of worry in terms of what kind of relationship we're supposed to see with Suga and then Biden. However, I think what we're seeing now is this kind of continuation of the Obama, which is actually more predictable 
more space for special advisors. Many of these special advisors under the Obama administration have been called back. We're seeing more of a continuity and also this kind of different styles of Trump and Biden. Biden would probably listen more to his advisors than what we saw with Trump. So in that sense, there's going to be more of this kind of strategic, logical progression in U.S. policy towards Asia. A couple of you obviously referred there to the fact that Biden was the vice president under Obama, and Obama famously had the policy of pivoting U.S. foreign policy towards Asia. At the same time, though, there was some disappointment within Asia, I think, at the way things turned out under Obama and whether he really followed through on that pivot policy. So to what extent do you think that Asian governments expect a return to that approach under Obama and to what extent do they hope for a little bit more? There have been endless discussions now about what did Biden win in terms of foreign policy. Many analysts argue that unlike Obama, Biden does not have any special relationship with Southeast Asia, and maybe he will not really be pivoting to Asia. It's probably he'll be more pivoting towards the Middle East because there are a lot of issues that he has to deal with. What is most disappointing for Southeast Asia is the U.S. attention to Southeast Asia tends to be very episodic, very sporadic, and it's quite often it's just a function of its policy towards China. That's not really appreciated given that, you know, the attributes that Southeast Asia has its strategic position as a heartland within the Indo-Pacific region, its huge population, its huge market. To be seen only sometimes as an adjunct with China policy, it's not something that, you know, Southeast Asians really appreciate. So, you know, Southeast Asia wants to be taken on its own merit, besides as the primary theater of geostrategic competition between US and China. But the most important thing that's still missing, despite the fact that Southeast Asia is a top investment destination from the US, it is lagging way, way behind China. And the focus of U.S. engagement tends to be much more security-oriented rather than investment-oriented or economy-oriented. And for that, you know, for most Southeast Asian countries where economy is a top consideration, that the U.S. is considered to be really lagging behind. Jay, what do you think that Biden can do, the Biden team could do in the first sort of 100 days, that all-important period that the media focuses on with any new U.S. presidency? What can they do in that period to really signal the direction they want to take on policy towards Asia? I think he can develop his arguments presented in two articles and a speech that he delivered to the public the past couple of years. The first one starting with his address at CUNY, you know, City University of New York in July of 2019 and his recent article in Foreign Affairs. I think he elaborated where he stands with his foreign policy. You know, after looking at his experience as a senator for 36 years and eight years as vice president, he knows how to shape and he understands what it takes to formulate American foreign policy. And he certainly knows how to advance American foreign policy and how to deal with foreign counterparts on the diplomatic front after having served eight years as a vice president. So I think in the first 100 days, I think uh, all he has to do is really send out a strong signal as to where he wants to lead the nation to the world in public. And I think it can come in form of a speech or something. I think that'll be enough for him. Yuko, what are your thoughts on that? What he can immediately signal in terms of where he wants to take relationships with key allies in Asia? Yeah, I think one of the key things that you saw about Biden coming in, the negative sort of um, criticism was 
whether or not he can be strong against China. So one of the things that Trump actually did was he was strong, definitely in rhetoric. He was very vocal criticizing China. And so what you heard in Asia was whether or not Biden would not be as vocal and stand up against China. So I think what you need to distinguish here is between rhetoric and reality, right? So on one hand, Trump was very rhetorically against kind of criticizing China. But on the other hand, I think, you know, his strategies, he was critical. There is a U.S.-China trade war going on. However, I think the rhetoric is more than the reality. And I think Biden is going to be more strategic. So what you see now, yesterday, they just proclaimed and reassured Japan in terms of U.S.'s position against Senkaku. And what we talked about earlier was this, you know, U.S. has always been traditionally much more an actor in security. But I think that's going to be branching out now because what you're seeing from the Obama administration and the shift now is that it's a very different China. This is actually, Obama was actually seeing Xi coming in, but it's not this kind of Xi very much full-blown in terms of what he's doing in terms of the Belt and Road Initiative, his initiatives throughout Southeast Asia, his investments in Southeast Asia. So in a sense, it's very apparent that China is actually becoming a very economic and security actor in the region. So what I think Biden really needs to do is to make sure that it's not just security assurances via their U.S. hub and spoke system, but really utilizing their kind of networks they have in the region, revitalizing their kind of trade links and revitalizing their links with, you know, actors in the region and not just reassurance, but really actually strategically engaging. Like, for example, we have sort of vocal overtures with this kind of free and open Indo-Pacific that U.S. is actually very much supportive of. But in terms of reality on the ground, it's very weak and it's stance against the Belt and Road Initiative. So I think the early days, I, it needs to be strategic, utilizing all of these bilateral, regional, and also multilateral, because one of the devastating things Trump did was really not engage with the multilateral. He completely disengaged with what's happening with you know, WTO. So in that sense, I think, his strategic advisors are very knowledgeable and good, and there actually is continuity between Obama and Biden now. But the difference is China. It's a very different China. And what remains to be seen is how strategic and assertive U.S. can still be under Biden. It's interesting, Yuka, that both you and Dewey talked about what the U.S. can do economically to back up its alliances and its relationships in Asia, particularly with that counter threat coming from China. Famously, obviously, Donald Trump's administration, they withdrew from the Trans-Pacific Partnership, big trade deal in the region on the first day, I think, that Trump was in office. That trade agreement is now called the CPTPP. Is that something that the US could rejoin? Do you see that as being something that countries that are in that partnership would welcome? Dewey, do you want to take that one first? Well, I can tell you that a couple of days ago, I had a discussion with colleagues in the United States, and most of them convincingly argued that it's not going to be that easy for Biden to walk again into a free trade agreement, particularly, you know, there's uh, long negotiations and now the CPTPP, you know, is, uh, it has been negotiated again. And, and if the U.S. were going to join, and it will, of course, try to ensure that its viewpoints will be reconsidered and maybe that the, the, the Asian partners are not going to be keen. So, you know, I think it remains to be seen, but Biden himself said that he's not going to talk about free trade arrangement anytime soon. 
I don't think he can wish away the populism in the United States either. The domestic pressure against too much engagements in multilateral free trade agreements are probably going to, to reign very strong, especially if the Senate is not controlled by the Democrats. Yuka, do you think that Japan would welcome the US back into CPTPP, as it's now called? I think on one hand, you need to distinguish between this kind of stance in terms of a liberal economic order. So in terms of CPTPP, you've actually got this kind of originally Obama pushed idea of actually encirculating and containing China. So it would be a much more um, rule-based playing field for trade. And this is essentially because we're having difficulties in multilateralism, as we see the Doha round is still anywhere near being resolved. So in that sense, we're shifting towards these mega regionals like RCEP and CPTPP. And that's one hand, you have this kind of discussion in terms of liberal economic order. On another hand, you have to really examine the United States as a economic player in terms of, okay, they've been out of these negotiations for a while. Can they really actually join now being a late player? So there are these considerations, but in terms of like the overtures and assertiveness towards China, it's sending these kinds of signals that the US will not tolerate this kind of different approaches to um, economic order. And you see with a lot of PRC officials that a lot of this vocal war between Trump and the PRC was very much on this kind of world order. Whose world order? Whether it was a US world order led world yeah. order or a UN led world order. And there's this kind of, you know, cheese pushing of this globalization and being a trumpeter for this globalization and playing by the multilateral so-called rules. So in that sense, I think although there's going to be these dampers domestically, I think Biden really needs to send these kinds of signals because it is a very different time. We're actually doing this primarily online because we actually are in this COVID lockdown situation. So it's a very different time. We've had Hong Kong, we've had Xinjiang, we've had COVID-19. So with these kinds of challenges for China, I think the United States, as you know, the hegemonic power, really needs to send these kinds of signals to China that there will be these boundaries set. Jay Wu, yeah. as well as talk about uh, trade agreements, there's obviously been talk out there about a sort of League of Democracies, a D10 grouping, it's been called, which probably would be something like the G7, as we already have it plus countries like Australia and maybe South Korea being formed as a sort of counter to China's growing influence. How do you think that sort of grouping would go down both in Korea and in Asia more broadly? I think probably with South Korean government is going to be a big challenge because obviously uh, any kind of multilateral democratic society that the West has in mind to build is going to particularly focus on democracy, liberty, freedom, human rights, and so forth. And for South Korean government, the League of Democracy is going to carry those issues uh, onto North Korean issues. Then I think that would be a problem to South Korean government, especially, you know, the progressive party, the ruling party, and the current president is particularly opposed to inserting, you know, human rights and democratic values as conditions for dealing with North Korea, even at the United Nations stage. So I think that's going to be a really big challenge to uh, incumbent South Korean president. Not only legal democracy, but also, you know, Biden has also announced that he would like to host Summit for Democracy uh, in his first year. And that Summit for Democracy, we all know that, you know, representatives from 
not only the Western world, but also Taiwan and Hong Kong's uh, democratic movements uh, are all invited to the summit. And I think that's why, you know, South Korean government has been reluctant to send any officials representing the country to the summit uh, the past two years. And they were really conscious of China's response if they do it. Absolutely. So, Dewey, obviously, over the last four years, we've obviously had Trump in charge in the US. But, you know, there are problems in democracies in certain countries across Asia. And arguably, some countries like the Philippines have taken a a more authoritarian turn in recent years, aside from what's been going on in, in the US. How do you think from your perspective, this idea of a league of democracies and more of an emphasis from Biden on things like human rights and, and freedom of speech and so on is going to go down in the region more broadly. This understanding that a democratic administration always put more emphasis on values in, in comparison yeah. to, to a Republican one, just more on security and economic cooperation. Obviously, some elite regimes are worried about that. They do not want the U.S. to intervene in the domestic affairs. But other civil society groups are quite enthusiastic about that because there's been a general democratic regression, not just in the Philippines or Thailand, but you know, Indonesia has also seen a serious, significant dip in its democratic performance and, and, mm. and human rights protection. So within Indonesia, the democracy activists and civil society groups have been very critical of the government as well. So from this perspective, a Washington government that pays attention to, to values will be quite welcome. But on the other hand, from the Indonesian perspective or from the ASEAN perspective, our approach to democracy is less preaching and more engaging. So having a legal democracy that tries to draw a hard line between us and them, between those who are democracies and those who are not democracies, and they relate uh, in a more adversarial manner, is not the best way to advance democracies. Indonesia, as you know, has, has been very active in hosting this annual Bali Democracy Forum, where uh, there is an attempt to bring those committed democracies as well as those aspiring to democracies, you know, uh, to come together. So, so our approach is less adversarial and try to engage all sides so that countries will become less defensive. So on the one hand, you know, I personally, and I'm sure that many others who are concerned about this democratic regression in Southeast Asia, you know, would welcome uh, the United States that also pays attention to this as well as uh, United States that also pays attention to its democratic performance at home and its protections of mm. human rights at home, because any other country would have less credibility, you know, if they try to pontificate to other countries while at home, they are not doing that well either. Yeah, so I think Biden's policy of trying to reach out to all Americans and to improve, for example, police performance, protection, better protection of minorities would actually speak louder than simple finger pointing. Yuko, what's your perspective on this aspect of what might potentially happen under under a Biden administration? Is this something that will go down well in Japan, do you think, for example? Or, you know, is there a sense that the US often preaches, as Dewey says, but doesn't even put its own preaching into practice at home? I think I really share what Dewey was actually saying about mixed messages. On one hand, if you actually have externally pointing fingers and internally you have things like, you know, Black Lives Matter movement, it's really double standards and doesn't give the United States a lot of credibility when they're speaking out about these things. But on the other hand, I think it's also important to bear in mind, you know, what I raised earlier about a very strong China. It's a very different China now that we're encountering. And if you think in terms of democratic values, 
you see on one hand this kind of encroachment of China via these kinds of economic sort of carrots and investments. They're actually、um, spreading their approach to various things. And one thing comes to mind if you think about things like the Belt and Road. You have on one hand CMEC, China-Myanmar Economic Corridor, and what's happening with Chinese investments there. And it's hard to actually disentangle that with Wang Yi flying to、um, Yangon just before Wang Sanzuqi flew to The Hague to represent Myanmar before the ICJ. So this is about you know the treatment of Rohingyas. And if you actually have China supporting Myanmar's position there, and China having the parallel issue of their minority issue of Xinjiang, it really does need some kind of assertive power that speaks against this. In the sense that you know there are these kinds of fundamental universal rights that really need to be ensured. And I think in that sense, it's been traditionally the United States, but it is a United States that's really troubled domestically. It's very divided. It's also one that has double standards in terms of minorities. So, in that sense, I think Biden's message when he first came in about bringing the nation together was really a welcome first step. It's hard to really, you know, have these things parallel domestically, internationally, but that's really the challenge that the Biden administration is going to have to really、um, do. And with Japan, I would say that Japan has always been pushing forward this arc of democracies. Starting with you know Hatoyama and their first administration, so you have this emphasis on rule-based investment of trade and rule of law, transparency under this free and open Indo-Pacific, which Japan is trying to bring partners in, like the United States. I think, in a way, this kind of Biden push for this ideals-based foreign policy is a welcome shift for Japan in the long run, but it's going to be needing a time for really settling down because Japan. Had such a special relationship with the Abe Trump partnership, it's going to take time for that to be、um, developed between Sugo, who's actually quite new to the role, and also Biden. But all in all, I think it is a welcome push for Japan. Let's turn to hard power then. Under Trump, in a sense, there were there were mixed messages. I mean, the the American Navy has been more active, say, in the South China Sea recently, but at the same time, Trump had this. Very transactional approach, and this sense that Asian countries—and he was the same with NATO as well—need to start paying more for their own defence. And he threatens things like the end of certain levels of military collaboration in in South Korea. What is the feeling across the region about whether the U.S. is going to be prepared to stand behind countries? In the region, militarily, if necessary, in the future, under a Biden administration, do they feel confident that they're still going to have that backing? Jaywu, can I start with you on that? I don't think there's any doubt that Asian countries have America's、uh, security reassurance and commitment to the defense of the allies in the region. Even with Donald Trump and his administration, I don't think there's. Any kind of word or statement coming from the White House or President himself that they're going to really withdraw is,、uh, their commitment. So、uh, I think there's a little misunderstanding regarding U.S. security commitments to the region. I think that's going to be upheld、uh, in Biden's administration too. So there's no doubt about it. But to what extent and how how effective the administration is going to carry out its commitment, I think that's another question. I think Trump、uh, was misunderstood because of his rhetoric 
of his rhetoric because mm. he, he's asking for a greater sharing from the allies and that there was such an unorthodox, uh, unprecedented demand for coming from the White House in America and things like that shouldn't happen. I mean, it was so, so, such an irrational demand asking, you know, $5 billion uh, annual contribution from South Korea and $8 billion from Japan. <laughs> that's, uh, that's just unrealistic. I think uh, as long as, you know, Biden administration it carries out a policy and stance that is rational and, and negotiable with the allies, and I think U.S. commitment is going to be well-respected and well-received by the allies. Yuka, do you think that point of view is shared in Tokyo as well? You referred earlier to the Senkaku Islands, what the Japanese call the Senkakus, what the Chinese call the Diaoyu. And there's already been some reaching out between the Biden team and the Suga administration in Japan on that. Is that being seen as a, a positive sign by Japan that the Biden administration will stand behind its allies militarily? Seen as a positive um, reassurance. But I think before I answer this question, if I may, I'd like to kind of distinguish between reassurance and action, right? right? So on one hand, you have Biden's reassuring Japan about their commitment to the East China Sea. However, you'll see that various stages in the campaign, Biden's senior advisors have always said it's going to be diplomacy first before action. And I think, you know, if you see how they're dealing with the Middle East, I mean, we're going back to, you know, the time when we had the Iran deal in the Middle East in the um, Obama administration. So it's going back to that kind of tradition and trying to emphasize negotiations and diplomacy. And I think although you'll see Biden giving these reassurances, I think he's going to try utmost to resolve everything before we see any kind of, you know, outright conflict. Dewey, what are your thoughts on this? In countries like Indonesia, what do they want to see America from the Biden team in terms of military support? Well, firstly, you know, Indonesia is not a line country, free and active foreign policy, so it doesn't have any military alliances with any countries. It doesn't usually welcome too much uh, external military presence in the region. When you're looking at Southeast Asia, Trump reiterated U.S. allied commitment to the Philippines saying that the South China Sea is included in that protection. But we don't really know whether the U.S. will really come to the Philippines' aid if China really pushes the Philippines in the South China Sea. But there is a general credibility problem, as I say, you know, uh, about yeah. the United States in, in Southeast Asia since the Guam Doctrine, basically. After all, the United States basically told Southeast Asia countries, you know, you, you have to look after yourself. And that's raising the term between ASEAN forming closer cooperation and trying to develop its own resilience. And of course, you know, ASEAN countries would like to see diplomacy as the primary tool for managing conflict. So Biden's approach following Obama's that would try to prevent the emergence of hot conflicts by emphasizing multilateral cooperation, I think is in line with what Indonesia and ASEAN countries as a whole prefer. During Trump's administrations, the freedom of navigation operations is a challenge sea is six times as, as many as during the entire Obama period. I'm not sure that it actually made South China Sea that much more stable. So, yeah, so, so uh, clearly, uh, on the one hand, we like to see some hard power, you know, some real deterrence, but on the other hand, engaging all sides and looking at managing the conflict. Just the last one on this, Yuka, we've seen in the last couple of years, 
a sort of re-energizing of this so-called quad grouping, which is the US, India, Japan and Australia. Do you see that being developed further now and maybe that developing into some kind of security arrangement through the Indo-Pacific? I think that's definitely true. And you're seeing this not something that just suddenly springs up. You're seeing a continuity of this. If you look at the, you know, U.S.-India joint uh, Malabar naval exercises, you've had Japan come on a couple of years ago. And then it seems really counterintuitive that you have India and Ocean military exercise involving a country that's far as Japan. But it already shows that there's this kind of initiative to bring these countries together, the United States, India, Japan, and Australia. So this is something that they've been consciously developing because this has been going on prior to even the Belt and Road in the sense that you had this discussion in China about this kind of selection of ports along its maritime road. So collection of things like Yaoqiu, Myanmar, and Sinukville, and Amentota. So you're seeing these investments turning into more like military security type investments. So there were these kinds of initiatives starting off even before the Biden administration came in, even before Trump came in. And you're seeing increasingly more coordination and collaboration between these countries, be it based on these security interests, be it based on democratic values. And I think this is definitely true that, you know, you're seeing this becoming more of a core of trying to have more of an aligned position because we actually see the other side, the other being China. And China is actually becoming a very important actor and one that has influential power, not just hard power. So we're seeing the United States actually not just relying on its bilateral hub and spoke system, but venturing out to arrangements like the Quad, arrangements like free and open Indo-Pacific. They're utilizing existing initiatives that really help advance their agenda, be it democratic values or security interests. Well, let's move to that all-important relationship between the world's two largest economies now, the US and China. Jaywoo, I think it's arguable that Beijing, to some extent, misread Donald Trump. They didn't expect him maybe to follow through with some of the threats that he made, particularly in the trade area, to quite the extent that he has, certainly in the last couple of years of his presidency. What then is Beijing's assessment of Biden? What are they expecting, do you think, from the new president? I think they're going to look at Biden as a president from two perspectives. I think one is a traditional perspective. Him being a Democrat president, I think they're going to go back to the history book and try to look into what, you know, Democrat presidents has done with his relationship with China in the past. And second is Biden himself, because Biden himself is really exposed to China and China also understands it very well visited a lot many times to China, and he personally met Deng Xiaoping in April of 1979. I'm sure China might be a little bit concerned because of the fact that Biden is a changed man. He used to be a really pro-China person. There's so many cases from 79 and on, and you know, going back to 1989 when the United States administration was trying to impose sanctions in the aftermath of a Tiananmen incidents and democratic movement in Tiananmen Square in China. And Biden was pretty soft on that, and he was a great supporter of China's entry to WTO and so forth. 
But after China's uh, entry to WTO, I think he's become a changed man. And he's had some uh, traumatic experiences as a vice president while serving under Obama's administration. For instance, like G20 Hangzhou meeting in 2014, you know. I don't know if China intentionally forgot to uh, serve the uh, staircase to Air Force One when President Obama arrived in Hangzhou Airport. There was another uh, incident in Copenhagen. There was a climate summit. I believe it was in 2009, and you know, Wen Jiabao, then the premier of China, you know, stood uh, President Obama. So uh, he's had some bad experiences with China, and he understands, like just like Yuka said, it's a different China now, and he's he's totally changed man. I think that brings the most concern to China, and I think they're trying to analyze and understand where he stands when it comes to China. Yuka, what do you think they'll be thinking in Beijing? I mean, do you think Biden's going to, for example, carry on with the pressure on trade that we've seen under the Trump administration when it comes to China? I think they're really studying a lot of notes at the moment. I mean, one thing about Trump was he was unpredictable. And Biden is a lot more predictable. But there are so many differences, as as Jay Wu was saying, that's happened, right? And he's also a changed man. But one of the things I have hope here is that Biden is also very well informed. He really utilizes the China knowledge inside the U.S. And that's very different to Trump. I mean, the difficulty with Trump was he was not very much in touch with the expertise in the United States about China. So he was very much moving on his own. However, in terms of Biden, he's much more in touch with his aide. He's much more aware. And he's also strategic. He has very good advisors that really would probably advise him not to push China into a corner like Trump did. Because the key things with negotiations is China is that, you know, you never want to corner these countries. You always want to give space for negotiation, especially when you're dealing with China, who really has an emphasis on faith and image and, you know, mianza. So I think they're studying notes and really viewing which direction Biden's going. And Biden and his advisors are also probably doing the same to really recalibrate what is the best way forward. But I think one thing you're actually seeing all throughout is they're going to have negotiations. And there they're probably thinking, okay, this is one president they can actually have more conversations with, more negotiations with. So that's probably a sigh of relief. But there's a lot of variables and question marks that they're actually still studying at the moment. Dewey, we've talked a bit about, of course, the fact that Biden was a very key part of the Obama administration. And I think there is some concern in Asia, is there not, that under Obama, at times, he went a bit soft on China, if I can put it like that. So, for example, he made concessions to China in order to get them to agree to the Paris Climate Accords and so on. What's your sense about the broader feeling about the US-China relationship in Asia outside those two countries? What do you think they are hoping to see from the US in its attitude towards China? Well, Southeast Asia looks at both the United States and China, not as whole countries, but more issue specific. So, I mean, for Southeast Asia, both the United States and China are equally important. In fact, in terms of the economy, China is now the most important economic power that has, you know, with the greatest investment in the region. Also, its political influence is also much, much greater. But there are certain areas where Southeast Asian countries, particularly Indonesia, are not on the same page with China. And the same goes with the United States. Many countries, including Indonesia, are also comprehensive strategic partners with the United States, but there are also elements of disagreement. 
So for Southeast Asian countries, we don't look at the United States and China relations like two billiard balls dealing with each other. You really have to unpack the relationships and it will be very much issue-based. And for many countries in the region, the trade war has really hurt us. Indonesia in particular has been hurt three times because its exports to China has declined because it's decreasing demands on primary commodities and other raw materials. Indonesia is not doing so well in exporting to United States either. You know, there's expectations that Southeast Asian countries can pick up on the lag. And Indonesia is not that competitive. And we are not that competitive either in hosting the expected relocation of industry. So there is a real expectation that the trade war will ease. The emphasis is, you know, look at the issue, go to the detail. There are certain areas where the United States should be firm without sabered rattling. For example, the South China Sea. But on certain other areas, it should be much better you know, for the region as a whole if there are some flexibility. Both Yuka and Jay, we would like to ask about Taiwan now. I mean, obviously, we've seen a little bit more activity in that region recently. What some people are seeing is a little bit more aggression from mainland China towards Taiwan. How worried are you that there could be some kind of conflict over Taiwan during this next period of the Biden administration? If you ask me, I'm a little bit concerned because usually with Republican presidents, the United States foreign policy tend to focus more on Taiwan than Japan, whereas with Democrat president, it would be vice versa. But I don't know if um, Mr. Biden is going to assume or carry on the legacy or whatever is left over from the Trump administration regarding security assurance to Taiwan, especially in the context of the Indo-Pacific strategy. It would be a challenge to a Democrat president who's not really used to overseeing you know, affairs with Taiwan and having less interest in Taiwan than Republican counterparts. So I think that's where my concern comes from. And I'm just hoping that because Democrat administrations and people, diplomats, are having less experience with Taiwan, I'm just hoping that it's not going to be a recurrence of what President Carter did with Lebanon and Middle East all over again. So hopefully, just like you got pointed out, it seems like Biden's team, there's much greater uh, room for specialists and hopefully he will listen and be really wise with uh, advice coming from his uh, specialists and so forth. Yuka, I'd love to get your thoughts on Taiwan, but also, you know, there's talk about a Biden administration perhaps taking a harder line with China on issues such as Xinjiang and Hong Kong as well. What do you think could be the impact of that if that materializes? Right, very good questions. I think um, I really <laughs> Sorry, big questions at the end here. But, uh, um, yes. I echo Jay with concerns. Um, one of the key things what you're hearing in terms of concerns about Biden coming in is how strong they can be against China. And one of the key things I'm reminded of is my conversations with Taiwanese friends, and they were concerned that Biden couldn't be as strong against China as Trump was. Yeah, And this is something you're seeing vocalized in Taipei. And I think in that sense, also this emphasis on negotiations and diplomacy and this aversion for action is something that's seen as a source of worry for the Taiwanese. And this is where I really hope that this conversation with the China um, experts in the United States and also the strategists 
that are on the National Security Council will be able to advise Biden accurately in how to play this, because it is also a very different China and very complicated, a tricky situation. But this is where I hope strategy and also logic prevails. Now, in terms of Xinjiang and Hong Kong, I think you're going to have more of a normative stance coming out from the United States, very much trying to have change in the Xinjiang and Hong Kong issue. But this is not going to be coming from the United States on its own. I mean, you have to bear in mind that, you know, Boris Johnson really first came out to criticize Hong Kong and was really vocal about this as well. So even when the United States takes these normative positions, you've got partners like the UK and also partners like the EU who actually are very normative in their foreign policy. Finally, I just wanted to touch upon climate change. One of the key things yes. I think there is an opportunity for this US-China to really cooperate is climate change. Because Although we're focusing so much on deaths of COVID, one thing we forget is that one in seven deaths globally is due to pollution, right? So one of the key things is really climate change and pollution is one of the key challenges we have ahead of us today. And China has really made this ambitious claim to become carbon neutral. So in that sense, this is one area that you'll have this kind of overlapping of interest there could actually foster into more cooperation and in terms of more discussions into the other realms. So I think climate change is one opportunity in one area and also one that the UK is actually trying to push forward because UK is hosting the Glasgow COP coming up, the Conference of Parties of the UN Framework Convention of Climate Change. So this is where you actually see this light at the end of the tunnel, as you might say, for this kind of bleak outlook we've had with the US-China relations. And this cooperating for climate change can filter into economy because there are economic sort of benefits and also opportunities for climate energy. And China is putting a lot of emphasis into renewables. And you have to bear in mind, the U.S. has been really hard hit by the U.S.-China trade dispute as well. So there are all, all these things going, economic benefits, climate change, environmental benefits going for a bettering relations between the United States and China. So I see this light at the end of the tunnel, and I am hopeful that Biden will be more strategic and more logical in their um, interactions with Beijing and hope that we can actually see more um, steps forward in that direction. Zoe, do you have reasons to be cheerful here as well? I mean, you talked at the start about a hope that, you know, Biden administration might engage with Southeast Asia more, engage with groupings like ASEAN more than the Trump administration has done. Do you see climate change as an area where, you know, there can be more cooperation? Are there other things where you have hope for the Biden years? Well, firstly, in terms of hope for promoting regional cooperation, there is certainly much greater hope that the Biden administration will pay more attention to ASEAN and will attend all these various ASEAN meetings. For ASEAN, uh, it's not just substance, but symbolism is also important. You know, uh, it, it doesn't forgive countries that miss, they do not send their highest representatives. And as I said, you know, Trump missed most of these meetings. So hopefully uh, with the Biden administration, there, there'll be support for ASEAN centrality. That's very, very important. And, and on issues like multilateralism, for middle power countries, you know, multilateralism is very, very important. And when big powers show contempt to multilateral approaches and that smaller countries are forced to deal with big powers bilaterally, it's always going to be asymmetrical. So for us, it's very, very important, you know, the, the emphasis on multilateralism, whether it is on climate change, whether it is on vaccines, whether it is on peace and security, whether it's on trade, you know, there is this great expectation that the United States will again be a champion, you know, of multilateralism. Thirdly, the attention to bilateral relations. 
for Southeast Asia, the most important thing is this consistency, not to parachute on and off. You know, whenever there is a crisis, then they'll come and then, then they go away again. Southeast Asia is very complex and relations with Southeast Asian countries are very diverse. You know, there are, there are countries which are treaty allies of the United States, like the Philippines uh, and Thailand. There are countries that are you know, strategic partners in the United States, Singapore, and now also Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia. There are also, you know, the other countries which need to be given sufficient attention. Otherwise, they'll become totally subordinated to China, like Laos, Cambodia, and Myanmar, you know, and they need yes. to be given equal attention. And you cannot have a policy that fits all. So there needs to be a real knowledge also in Washington to look at the diversity of countries in South Asia and, and to deal with South Asia in its own terms. I say, no, it's not simply as a satellite of its policy towards China. Well, thank you for that. I think that's a, a great note to end on. Thank you to all three of you for taking the time for this discussion. I'm sensing cautious optimism maybe about the Biden years, a sense that countries in Asia, though they don't want to be preached at by America anymore, they want to be listened to and brought into multilateral processes again. And they're looking, though, for American leadership to start at home and for America to address some of its own challenges as well as it seeks to reassert its sort of authority in Asia. Thank you so much, as I say, for your time this morning and for all that expertise. We could have talked for ages, many other topics to consider lots of tricky areas, but thank you for your insights. My thanks as ever to Alex Lestrange, who does the music for Asia Matters. Thank you to Sanan Dillon and Jay Sung for helping with the production of this episode. And please tune in next time to Asia Matters. We have plenty more interesting episodes to come. But for now, I'll say goodbye. <laughs>